And please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20 is our passage this morning. I'm going to read starting in verse 9 of chapter 6 and then read down through verse 20. So please follow along as I read. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful to me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, because you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I've entitled this message, Why We Must Flee from Sexual Immorality. Pretty straightforward, straightforward passage. You see in your worship guide, or you may have seen, um, or you will see after I tell you this, um, that the book of the month is um, a book by Thomas Brooks called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. I would strongly encourage you to read that book. One of the easier Puritan (laughs) authors to read, Thomas Brooks, Um, he argues in this book that Satan has devices that he uses. We see that from the Scriptures, and he details those, but then he also writes about the precious remedies that we have in Christ against those devices. It's a very instructive book. I'd encourage you to read it slowly maybe read it a little bit at a time, maybe meditating on it, thinking through it, turning to passages. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful resource, uh, which is simply just explaining what the Bible says, to, has to say about Satan's tactics and our, again, remedies against them. One of the things that Brooks says in his uh, book, Precious Remedies, is that Satan, one of his tactics, is to try to paint sin with virtuous colors. He tries to make sin look like something good, well, I can, I can say that about them because I'm just speaking up for what's right. Or when it comes to sexual sin, we might engage in sexual sin or think about sexual sin because it looks fulfilling. 
It looks good, looks beautiful, has these virtuous colors. We might think of sexual sin and not think about poison, but think of romance. We might look at sexual sin and not think about it destroying us, but about it enlivening us. Again, Satan's tactics. Sexual sin, like other sins, devour consciences, destroy relationships, and heap guilt upon people. The sin that looks so pleasing will always prove one day to be poisonous. The sin that looks so pleasing will always prove in the end to be poisonous. And as children of God, we must flee sexual immorality. Some Corinthian Christians believed that they were forgiven of their sins, but that sex, because it was a physical act, not a spiritual act, because it was a physical act, could not possibly be a sin because it only involved their bodies. That's the argument they make. And Jesus died for their spirits, so it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. But Paul is writing to show why sexual immorality is so harmful and therefore why we must flee from it. So our outline for the morning as we go through these verses is going to be as follows. Two reasons we must flee from sexual immorality. I'm going to go through Paul's argument in verses 12 through 20, and then at the end I want to provide some some maybe very practical application for us. So two reasons we must flee from sexual immorality. Now before I get into the two reasons, I want to make a note about the audience. The audience then and the audience now. There were some Christian Corinthians who were engaged in sexual immorality and were even excusing it. And Paul's writing to confront them, to teach them, to instruct them. Some of them may, may not have been true Christians, but claimed the title of Christian. And so Paul's writing to change their mind. They have a wrong view of the Christian life and sex and immorality. They have a wrong view, and Paul's writing to change their minds, and he lays out his arguments in, this, in this, these set of verses. So they need to hear these words. They should be convicted of what they're doing. So whether they're making excuses for their sin or even just hiding it, those are the people that should receive conviction. Now, it's clear that not all people in the Corinthian church were engaged in sexual immorality. And it's clear that some had been saved from it. That's why I read verses uh, 9 through, where am I? Okay, wrong page. That's why I read earlier 9 through 11 before our text this morning. Because we're reminded that such were some of you. It was the characteristic of your life to be a sexual sinner. But then you were saved, you were washed, and there still may be temptations, there still may be failings, but the repentant ones, the ones that understand what God says in His Word and pursue righteousness, those are people that demonstrate the forgiveness of God. The, the, the forgiveness of God, the redemption of God has been given to them. And so, I hope this morning that those of you that have turned from your sin, repented of your sin in the past and embraced a life of desiring righteousness and fleeing sexual immorality, I hope that this doesn't cause you to go back 
to those years before you were in Christ and to, and to relive and to reheap upon yourself, if you will, that old guilt. That's been taken care of. That's done. Christ doesn't need to die again for your sin. That death is done. That sin is covered. Now, as Christians who want to live in purity, we now say, okay, let's not get tangled up in that again. Let's move forward together. But people who are repentant shouldn't feel the guilt any longer, shouldn't take on the guilt any longer. There are so many passages in the Scriptures, like in Hebrews 12, it says, strengthen, strengthen your weak knees. Stand up now. You've mourned over sin. God's disciplined you. Stand up now. Move forward. It says, the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs talks about, he says, uh, it's good for someone to, to mourn over their sin. And it's good for someone to also have joy because they've been brought to mourning and now they have forgiveness. So the mourning has its place. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Find your joy there. But for those who are hiding sexual immorality or even excusing it, there is an argument to be made here from Paul that that's wrong and there should be conviction over that. So let's see what Paul has to say. Again, two reasons we must flee from sexual immorality. Here's the first reason found in verses 12 through 14. Our bodies still matter to God. Our bodies still matter to God. Now, the Corinthians here are going to make three statements. Some of you see those uh, quotation marks in this passage, starting there in verse 12. See, all things are lawful for me. If Hopefully, your Bible has the quotation marks there. Well, that's because that's a Corinthian saying. That's where the, what they were saying. All things are allowed for me. All things are lawful. All things are permissible, says the Christian Standard Bible. I'm able to do these things, and we know that these things were the sexual relationships, even many of the believers having sexual relationships with prostitutes during that time. But they're saying, that's a physical thing. I can do that. It's just my body. My body's going away. It'll be destroyed, as they say later on in the argument. But Paul refutes that. So, all things are lawful for me is a statement that they're making. What's Paul's answer there in verse 12? But not all things are helpful. But not all things are helpful. Are the things you're doing helping you? Are the things that you're doing helping other people? The things you're doing with your body? So you say all things are lawful, but not all things are actually helpful. So they're saying that they can do these things because they're free. They've got their sins forgiven, and this is just my body. It's going away. It's temporal. So I can go and do that thing with her or him. Paul says, no, that thing you're doing isn't helpful to you or anybody else. Reminds me of the argument in Romans 6 that Paul's, Paul makes to the Roman church. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but now under grace? By no means. Don't you know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, so you're either obeying sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, 
and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So, let, let's, let's get this straight. The Bible doesn't teach that we're freed from the tyranny of sin to go and engage in more sin. We're freed from the tyranny of sin to go and pursue righteousness. That's why one of the things that happens at salvation is regeneration, which is a change of heart. Did you catch that in Romans 6? Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching that you were committed. So when God frees us as Christians, He doesn't free us so that we can then sin. He frees us so that we can now then pursue righteousness. That's why when you become a Christian, you have different desires. It's not just that someone stamps, going to heaven. That's all that happens. You were going to hell, but going to heaven now. No, no, no. You get a new heart with that, and you pursue righteousness. You pursue holiness. They make a second statement, and it's really the first one all over again. All things are lawful for me. And Paul says, but I will not be dominated by anything. I will not be controlled by anything. Sexual sin uniquely controls people. It controls people's money. It controls people's time. It controls people's energy. It controls people's thought life. It dominates a life. It controls a life. And Paul's saying, when you're freed, you don't go back and put the handcuffs on. When you're freed from Satan, you don't walk back and say, put the handcuffs back on. When you're freed, you don't engage in things that will dominate you again. Again, Romans 6, do not let… Now, he's talking to Christians because Christians are the only one that can obey this because of the power they have in them. Do not let sin reign, rule, dominate. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Now, as an unbeliever, you have to obey sin's passions. You've got the old heart, the corrupt heart. But when you receive the regeneration, you can therefore determine, I'm not going to let that dominate me again. He that's in me is greater than he that's in the world. So all things are lawful. I can do this, but you'll be dominated by those things if you do them again. Then a third statement, and I believe, I'll just give you a heads up, I believe that the second quotation mark is in the wrong place. I'm not the only one. A lot of Bible scholars think this. Okay, so food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food, and they continue on in their argument, and God will destroy both one and the other. Big deal. Big deal. And Paul's going to talk about, Paul's actually going to not talk about God destroying, that's their argument, Paul's going to talk about God raising our bodies up. And so out of nowhere in verse 13, they bring up food. I thought we were talking about sexual morality. Why are we now talking about food? Because they're making an argument about the physical. They're saying, the physical act I'm doing is no big deal. It's just physical. Kind of like food. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Now, where did they get that teaching from? Jesus. But they're twisting His teaching. Be careful of being wrong when you make a biblical argument. <laughs> it's important to understand what Jesus is teaching and what He's not. So they're going back to Matthew 5, 17, where Jesus teaches that something physical isn't what corrupts a man inside. He goes on to say adultery, sexual immorality, theft, all that comes from the inside out. 
It's not that Pharisees not washing your hand before a meal will spiritually defile you. People have spiritual defilement from the inside and it comes out. So it's not that the food going in, which then comes out, is defiling a person. That's what Jesus is teaching in that passage. The Corinthians here are saying, ah, food is a physical thing. Eating is a physical thing, and it doesn't, it doesn't matter. <clears throat> God's going to destroy the food, and He's going to destroy the stomach. No big deal. It's temporal. So I can do this with my physical body. Paul will go on to show that sexual immorality isn't just physical. There are spiritual components to it. So they're arguing wrongly about the nature of food and physical things as not being important because, ah, God's going to destroy the physical, which is part of what a number of different philosophies in that time said. The, spirit, the, the physical is temporal, it's going to be destroyed, the spiritual is good, so we can do whatever we want right now because, again, we're right spiritually. That's not exactly true, not true at all. Again, their argument is that eating food with unwashed hands isn't what defiles a person, it's what comes from within. That's true. Therefore, they conclude that sex with others, which is merely physical, is okay. False. And they say the body is going to be destroyed. Now, Paul doesn't follow them through on that argument. He talks about the body being raised now. The body isn't destined to be destroyed, but to be transformed or glorified. That's how the Bible talks about the resurrection of a believer. It's a transformation. It's a glorification. It's not destruction. Paul says here that the answer to them, the body's not meant for sexual immorality, so evidently it does matter what you do with your body. The body's not meant for sexual immorality, but the body is meant for the Lord. So our bodies are for Him. We do with our bodies what is for His glory, His honor. He gives us a gift, our bodies, and we use them for Him. And the Lord is for the body. The Lord sustains our bodies. The Lord cares for our bodies. The Lord even knows, according to Matthew, the numbers of hair on our head. He cares is the argument there. So if He cares for our body, He calls us to care for our body in a way that would honor Him. Our body is for Him, and He sustains our body. And then he says in verse 14, and God raised the Lord, we know he's speaking of Jesus, the Father raised the Son and will also raise us up by his power. So Paul looks at the resurrection and says, look at how God cared for the body of Christ. He raised it up. So your bodies matter. Yes, they may be in the grave and deteriorate and just be left with bones, but the argument here is you don't just destroy something because God's raised bodies. Now, we will have new bodies. I think it's better to say recreated, glorified bodies. Evidently, Jesus's glorified body had some similarities to His other earthly body. So, this is, a, this is an argument Paul's making. Your bodies matter. You see him saying that here. Your bodies matter to God. You don't just misuse them, mistreat them. They're gods. Leon Morris, very 
capable and helpful theologian said this, that the Father raised the Son from the dead and did not simply cause His soul to persist through bodily dissolution, shows something of the dignity of the body. The resurrection forbids us to take the body lightly. And that's what they were doing. Ah, bodies don't matter. Our souls are going to heaven. Big deal. We can do this. And Paul says, no, your bodies matter to the Lord. So, if we kind of walk through the argument backwards, our bodies are going to be raised. Therefore, our bodies matter. Therefore, don't engage in sexual immorality. That's the argument working itself backward. I think of um, this body being valuable and precious. Evidently, God thinks that our bodies are valuable. He gave us our bodies. He's the one who gifted us with them. And yes, they're all touched by the curse, but He still gave us these bodies and the physical matters. That's clear through Scripture. The physical matters. And so, when we have these bodies given by the Lord, we are to take care of them, not use them for immorality, but to use them for God's glory. We have some friends who um, the wife, uh, the wife's father used to work for Bob Hope. And so, Bob Hope during Christmas time would give uh, our friend's father uh, like dishes and maybe, uh, you know, silver trays or things like that, and it would say, from Bob Hope. It was engraved, this cup, from Bob Hope, this silver tray, from Bob Hope. You should give gifts like that, you know, from Andrew Gutierrez, you know, <laughs> from Bob Hope. But, but and we, we'd go to their house, and we'd see them and kind of laugh about them, but, but they would take care of those things because this wasn't just, you know, from our neighbor down the road. This was from Bob Hope. We take care of this saucer. We take care of this tray. Well, if we've been given something from God, something as important as our bodies, one of the ways we respond to Him is by caring for our bodies, using them according to how He would want us to use them. He sets the terms, and evidently our bodies matter to God, so they should matter to us in how we use them. So that's one reason to flee sexual morality, because our bodies still matter to God. Second reason, found in verses 15 to 20, our bodies have been joined to God. It's not just that they matter to Him, but He's joined Himself to our bodies. As we go through verses 15 to 20, notice all the joining type of language, the togetherness type of language. Let's just read through it together. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ, part of Christ? There's one example. Shall I then take the members of Christ, another example, and make them members of a prostitute? That's the worst and negative example. 16, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Within you. Whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God 
in your body. A lot of joining together union language in those verses. So again, we flee sexual immorality because our bodies have been joined to God. Let's walk through that. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Now, this is the fullest or the the kind of specific expression of what they were doing there in Corinth. They were thinking that it was okay to engage with sexual, in sexual immorality, sexual acts with prostitutes. That's what people all over Corinth did. And again, you heard their argument earlier, ah, it's just physical. But this isn't just that prostitution's wrong. Earlier on, again, earlier on in the chapter, verses, uh, in verse 9, it talks about sexual immorality or don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral will inherit the kingdom of God. That, that's the, the blanket word for all sexual sin. Lust in the mind, pornography, adultery, all of those sexual sins under the umbrella of sexual immorality. This is just the expression of one of the ways they were doing it there in Corinth, engaging in sex with prostitutes. Don't make your, or do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? You've been joined to Christ, brought into union with Christ. So then do you then take the members of your body and make them members of a prostitute? No way. What an, what an abhorrent thought. See, it's, it's like you are in and of the world. Your body is for your own pleasure. You're, you're in the world. You're pursuing the things of the world. You're over here doing whatever you want with your body, destroying it. And then God brings you to salvation and brings your body to one with Christ. You, you are now in Christ. Your hands belong to Him. Your eyes belong to Him. Your mind belongs to Him. Everything belongs to Him. So you're now in Christ. So this is how you now live. But here's what's happening. You're now in Christ over here. This hand is demonstrating one now. You're now in Christ and you bring Him back over here. Him back to the prostitution, the sexual immorality that you were once engaged in. And so Paul's saying, don't you know that you're now members of Christ? Do you then take your members and now bring Christ with you to that man and that woman? those other people? No way, never. Or do you not know that he who was joined, verse 16, to a prostitute becomes one body with her? The sexual act brings about a certain oneness, a certain connection. It's more than just physical. For as it's written, the two will become one flesh. There's a union. There's a togetherness that happens. He's citing Genesis 2 where God says that the man shall leave the father and the mother and be joined to his wife, the act of sexual intimacy, and they shall become one flesh. And in Genesis 2, the people to be, to, to, to be joined as one flesh are the husband and the wife. That's the parameter. Verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So when you are bought by Jesus, when you're joined to God, you become one with Him, one spirit with Him. His ways become your ways. His, his commands are the can, commands that you determine to follow. His thinking becomes your thinking. So, you don't bring that and unite Him with darkness, prostitutes, sexual immorality. There's an element of the fact that we are joining Christ into whatever we do, 
we're joining Christ into whatever we do. So we think about it that way. We're part of His body. So what should we do as part of His body? How should we live? Who should we be with? Who should we be engaged in sexual acts with? That's the question. So knowing all of this, knowing about the close union between a believer and their Lord, then what do we do with that? Well, here's the application, verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Run away from it. A lot of people think of fleeing sexual immorality, and they think of Genesis 39, Joseph fleeing Potiphar's wife, just escaping, not kind of trying to reason through this whole thing. No, just, just get out. That's the language here, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. There may be a kind of a double meaning there, sins against the not just his own body, but the body he's connected to, Christ's body, Christ's church, Christ's people, to sin against more than just him. And it says to flee, and that the, the tense of that is a habitual action. It's an ongoing fleeing. It's not, I fled once. It's flee continually all the time. Sometimes you see those, uh, especially around September, September 11 documentaries and how sad those things are, but you see people fleeing those buildings when they're coming down, and they're just sprinting, running for their lives. That's, that's the idea here. Flee, run for your life. Don't get caught up in believing lies. Don't get caught up eating the poison. Flee. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but this one uniquely joins a person in Christ and people with them into this immoral act. Verse 19, or do you not know? This is the sixth time now in chapter 6 that he said, do you not know? One of the points we should get from this is that sanctification starts in the mind. Holiness starts from understanding the right teaching of God and then living accordingly. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? When they would hear temple, they would think of grand, special, a prized place. That's it. Our body is a special place where the Holy Spirit of God lives, dwells. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I love this. In those two verses, you see the Trinity and our body. Do you see that? You're a temple of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, God Himself. God the Spirit dwells inside of us, governs us. Why do we have the Holy Spirit? Because God the Father gave Him to us. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God. You have the Holy Spirit in you and God the Father is the one that gave Him to you and you are not your own for you were bought with a price. We know what that price is, right? The, the, the precious blood of Christ. We were bought with the blood of Christ, redeemed by the blood of Christ. So glorify God in your body. The Spirit dwells in you, the Father gave Him, and the Son's blood is what redeemed you. The Trinity has determined to give us grace and to live inside of us. And so now we are to use our bodies for His glory. 
not to think that it doesn't matter, not to think, ah, big deal, it's going away. No, our bodies matter, and our bodies have been joined to God. If uh, someone famous from history, pick, pick one of your historical heroes, were to come back to life, or maybe they're living right now, uh, and were coming over to your house, you'd get your house ready. You'd clean it. Now, what if they were coming to live at your house? All the more. Is everything in place? Is everything clean? That's kind of the language here. The Holy Spirit has been given by God, and God has determined that the Holy Spirit wouldn't be outside of you, but would be inside of you. So take care of the house that God lives in. And then again, application at the very end of verse 20. So glorify God in your body. So notice the two commands here in this passage. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality, run away, and then the other command at the end, so glorify God in your body. So there are things to avoid and there are things to then do. That's the application. It's not just avoid, but it's avoid and now do this, glorify, make much of God with your body. Now, I told you at the beginning I wanted to give you some very clear application on fleeing sexual sin, and this is from the Scriptures. Paul wrote another letter to his beloved disciple Timothy, and one of the things he talked to Timothy about was fleeing youthful lusts. Now, in the context of this passage, 2 Timothy 2, it's 2 Timothy 2.22, and I, I think that'd be a great one for you to know, 2 Timothy 2.22. In the context, the youthful lust is more about contention with other people and wrongfully as a youth getting caught up in quarrels. That's what young people do. It's what old people do also, but it's uniquely a young person's sin. It should be governed by the time you're older is the thought. But same as sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is a young person's sin. Look at, look at Solomon writing to his son in Proverbs 5 and 7. But it's also a youthful sin that older people engage in too. So, so youthful lusts are being contentious, argumentative, but also sexual sins as well. And so Paul talks to Timothy about fleeing youthful lusts, and he talks about how to do that. And it, this is so important for us so important for us. If you're going to succeed by the power of the Spirit, you're going to do it according to what the Spirit has said in the Word of God. This is how you flee. I'm going to read the passage to you. So flee youthful passions or lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. That's in one verse a full summary of how to flee youthful lusts, including sexual sin. I'm just going to break that down for us and ask you to, to flee sexual sin in this way. Okay, so he says, flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness. A lot of times people think of fleeing sexual sin as just what I'm not supposed to look at, what I'm not supposed to talk about, what I'm not supposed to do, things that they are trying to stay away from. And that's certainly part of fleeing, isn't it? But notice here, the best way to flee, 
The right way to flee is to run towards something. So it's not just that you're trying to avoid. It's not just that you're trying to flee sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, but you're also trying to glorify God in your body, 1 Corinthians 6, 20. So there's a running away, but there's also a pursuit of righteousness happening. Pursue righteousness. So the person that is trying to avoid sexual sin but doesn't care about being righteous in how they work, being righteous in other relationships, being righteous in how they speak, they're missing it. It's not just that you try to avoid certain sins, but you know you pursue righteousness in all of life. I think of, I may have told you this story before about a young man named Trevor who, used to, who I used to pastor. One of his other leaders um, w- would regularly lead this group of kids, and, and one of these kids was Trevor, and they'd go through a small group time and talk about the lesson they just learned. And, and sometimes when they'd go through confession of sin and things like that and prayer for one another, Trevor would constantly talk about his struggle with internet pornography. And Trevor would constantly talk about that for, for like a couple of years. And finally, his leader said, Trevor, you constantly confess that sin, and that confession is good, but that's gone on for a couple of years. And, and in this leader's mind, all Trevor is doing is trying to avoid, trying to avoid, trying to avoid. And he asked, Trevor, what are you living for? What are you doing? And so he told Trevor, Sunday after church, you're going to come with me, and we're going to go preach the gospel at the North Hollywood bus station. It's not normally a place that you'd want to go unless you had to. And so Trevor went with this leader, and they started just talking to people about Christ, talking to people about Christ. And, and Trevor was like, this is what I want to do. I just want to tell people about Jesus. And so Trevor started to tell people about Jesus at his public high school. He, he gathered together a Bible club. Now, most Bible clubs at public high schools are meant to kind of have Christians give, have a time for Bible study, Bible club. We're kind of together, and we're going to study the Bible. No, no, this Bible club was let's gather in as many unbelieving friends as we have on this campus where we can tell them about Christ. And so Trevor and his friends started this Bible club, and Trevor started becoming an evangelist at this high school. And that's just the way Trevor lived. He still lives that way. Trevor... After about a year, and I'll never remember, I'll never forget hearing this, this story. The leader told me this story. He said, Trevor was in small group, and he said, guys, this last year, I've been more sanctified, more holy than I've ever been. And he determined it's because he was living for Christ, not just trying to avoid certain things. Oh, I'm not supposed to. I'm not supposed to. But he was living for something. I am convinced That is one of the greatest, greatest weapons we have in fighting sexual sin. You're actually living for the kingdom of God. You're striving for holiness and righteousness for His glory. I mean, I think it involves our evangelism. I think it involves us building up the body of Christ. I want to help people grow in Christ, know Christ. I'm pursuing righteousness myself. It's almost as if you don't have time for that garbage. You're going somewhere flee youthful passions, and pursue, pursue. That, that's a strong word, isn't it? It doesn't say, hey, kind of meander through righteousness. Pursue righteousness. And that's not the only thing to pursue. Pursue faith. Pursue trusting in God. Pursue taking God at His word and seeking to obey because you trust Him. 
Pursue righteousness. Pursue trusting in God. Pursue love. What's the greatest commandment? Love God with everything you have. And Jesus taught us, and love your neighbor as yourself. When you're seeking to love your spouse, love your church, love your friends, love your kids, love, love people, you will flee from sexual sin. When you are pursuing a love to God, I want to glorify you. I want to make much of you. I want to talk about you. I want to enjoy you. When you're doing that, you are more likely to flee sexual immorality. Pursue righteousness, pursue faith, pursue love, and pursue peace. Now, again, I told you the immediate context of 2 Timothy 2.22 is, Timothy, don't do the young man's thing of just arguing and quarreling with everyone. You pursue peace. But even in sexual immorality, pursue peace with people. Think about your relationships. Have them united in Christ. You start to have contention and bitterness and fighting, all sorts of other sins come with that. Pursue righteousness, pursue faith, pursue love, pursue peace, and then this is a huge key. Along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Sanctification is not an individual sport. It is corporate. You do this with brothers. You do this with sisters. And what a blessing this body is. This body is full of people. They're standing there saying, I will lock arms with you. There are men and women all throughout this body that would say to you, I will pray with you. I will run with you. I will hold you accountable as you hold me accountable. I will pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with you. I'm in this with you. And that's how it's meant to be. We do this together with those who call upon the Lord cry out to Him for help. Call upon the Lord from a pure heart. We want Your name to be glorified. We need Your help in pursuing righteousness and avoiding sexual sin. Lord, we're coming to You together. Help us together. Help my brother. Help my sister. You take any one of those things out, and you're compromised in your ability to overcome sexual temptation. You put those things in from the heart pursuing righteousness, pursuing faith, pursuing love, pursuing peace with other people, you will start to see by the power of the Holy Spirit, growth, holiness, sanctification. You can take God at His Word in that regard. So I'd encourage you to think through those elements of avoiding sexual sin. Think through those elements of pursuing righteousness. Think through those. What do they actually look like? Like real-life decisions, who will be the one who talks to you about your computer usage, accountability with software? Who will be the one that prays with you? Who will be the one that you talk to about struggles? Who will do that with you? Again, I look at the elders of this church, the brothers who come alongside me. You, you've got people around you that would love to be that, to be those people for you, with you, helping you pursue righteousness. Sanctification is a corporate endeavor. Now, what if you're a sexual sinner? What if you've blown it this week, last week, last year, your whole life? I want to read to you 
a passage that I want you to hear very clearly. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. You can turn there, you can just listen as I read this. And here's the point before I read. Jesus came for the sexual sinners. If you are convicted, bring your honesty before Him and bring your trust in Him that He came to forgive you. Luke 7, 36. One of the Pharisees asked Him to eat with Him, and He went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And listen, a woman of the city, prostitute, who was a sinner, when she learned that He was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind Him at His feet, weeping, she began to wet His feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed His feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, sexual sinners don't always feel comfortable in Pharisees' homes, but this one didn't care. She had to get to Jesus. I would encourage you if you're convicted by your sin, you don't feel like you belong with the righteous or the self-righteous, <laughs> go to Christ. Verse 39, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And then Jesus told him a parable. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One, owned five, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he had canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman... He said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. I love that. She would have heard him tell Simon, her sins are forgiven. But he hammered the, home the point, looked at her and said, your sins are forgiven. You think Jesus wanted her to know that? Verse 49, then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You see how Jesus wants her to know something? Simon, she's forgiven. You are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She would not be living a life of peace before that. Go in peace. So if you are convicted by your sexual sin, I would encourage you, make a beeline to Christ. Admit what you've done. He knows and receive the forgiveness. 
Take him at his word. That is exactly why he came. I told you about precious remedies for Satan's devices. And I I don't want to pass up reading to you a page from that book. This, This passage before us, 1 Corinthians 6, tells us that we were bought with a price. And we know what that price was. Maybe there's a reference there. Maybe Paul's, again, using a play on words. You Corinthians have been going to prostitutes, paying them a price. But someone's paid a price to redeem you. I want you to think about that price. Think about that price. Think about the death of Jesus Christ, the blood that He shed. Thomas Brooks talks about how this should be a cause for motivation to flee sexual sin. Looking at what Christ has done should cause us to say, I want to live for Him. I don't want to live for the sins that He died for, was executed for. And Brooks says it in this amazing way, very poetic. And he talks about, he encourages the reader to consider all that Jesus left and all that He experienced for us as a way to then fight sin. So, it's a lengthy passage. It's a page. I, I want to ask you to hang in there, okay? Lunch is just right around the corner. <laughs> hang in there. I think if you listen to this, you'll be encouraged. That Christ should come from the eternal bosom of His Father to a region of sorrow and death. That Christ should be manifested in the flesh, the Creator made to be a creature, that he that was clothed with glory should be wrapped in rags of flesh. He that filled heaven and earth with his glory should be cradled in a manger. That the power of God should come in a weak man. That the God of Israel should come into Egypt. That the God of the law should be subject to the law. That the God who made the heavens would work at Joseph's homely trade, carpentry, that he that binds the devil in chains should then be tempted by him, that he whose is the world and the fullness thereof should have to hunger and thirst, that the God of strength should be weary, that the judge of all flesh should be condemned, and the God of life should be put to death, That he that is one with the Father should have to cry out of misery, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he that had the keys of hell and death at his side should lie imprisoned in the grave of another, having in his lifetime nowhere to lay his head, and even after to lay his body. That the head, before which angels cast their crowns, should then be crowned with thorns, And those eyes which are purer than the sun would be put out by the darkness of death. Those ears which hear nothing but the hallelujahs of the saints and angels would then hear blasphemies of the multitude. That face that was fairer than angels would be spit upon by those beastly, wretched enemies. That mouth and tongue that spoke as never any man spoke would then be accused of blasphemy. That those hands that freely swayed the scepter of heaven would be nailed to a cross for man's sins. Each of his senses were troubled. His feeling or touching, 
would feel a spear and nails, his smell, stinking flavors, being crucified at Golgotha, which is the place of the skulls, he would have smelled dead bodies. His taste would taste vinegar and gall. His hearing would hear the reproaches and the sight of, would hear the reproaches of men, and the sight of his mother and disciples bemoaning him. His soul would be comfortless and forsaken. And all this for those very sins that Satan paints fine colors upon. Oh, how should the consideration of this stir up the soul against it? And work should, and ours should be the work that flees from it. And to use all holy means whereby sin may be subdued and destroyed. So at the very end, I would simply say the greatest the greatest resource we have, the greatest motivation we have in overcoming sexual sin is looking at what Christ came to do for us and then saying, how can I engage in that when He went through all He did for me? And I'll just remind you that Jesus stands ready to save and redeem today. Let's pray. Father, teach us to run faster to flee, teach us to pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace. Give us brothers and sisters around us to do that with. I pray that you'd make this body, not the body, not the group of people that look down on the prostitute or look down on Jesus for associating with her, but make this the body that comes alongside her and says, we're here with you. We're here to help. We're here to strive. We're here to use our bodies for the glory of Christ. All of us are in the same boat, redeemed sinners who simply want to glorify you with our bodies. So enable us to do that. I'm praying that this next year in the life of Canyon Bible Church would be the most holy that we've lived because we're coming alongside one another, fighting sin, fleeing from sin, locking arms, running toward lives that glorify Christ. Please answer these prayers. Please answer these prayers. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.